Listeners, start your engines. episode 53 rob here we're in the home stretch as we entered the final third and final phase of our planet of the apes mega series going through all nine theatrically released films from that franchise and we're kicking off the reboot trilogies starring andy circus on this episode film critic win lee joins us to talk about 2011's rise of the planet of the apes as always you can find more episodes of this show on apple Podcasts, spotify Good Pods, and other podcatchers, as well as CrookedTable.com. Go ahead and give us a rating and review wherever you're listening to this. For now, let's listen to a little bit of the trailer and then jump into our conversation about Rise of the Planet of the Apes. We're talking about huge potential for millions of people. Our therapy enables the brain to repair itself. We call it the cure. I want you to start testing on chimps. ASAP. We test one subject. I want to make sure it's stable. I designed the 112 for repair, but Caesar's gone way beyond that. You mean increased intelligence? The skills that far exceed that of a human counterpart. This is wrong, Will. It works. And what about Caesar? Where does he fit in? That chimps company property. He hasn't spent any time with other chimps. They're not people, you know. You're trying to control things that are not meant to be controlled. Franchise Detours, we believe no movie series travels in a straight line. On this episode, we are trudging along through the Planet of the Apes, going all the way through the Forbidden Zone to to that Statue of Liberty on the beach. You finally did it, you animals, when we finally finished this mega series. Uh, But we're moving on to the seventh of nine films. And this is a, a, a brand new planet. This is a whole new take on the franchise, as we'll get into. We're talking... 2011's Rise of the Planet of the Apes, and I'm honored to welcome back to the show, Wen Lee. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, 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 and uh, thank you for having me again. You know, I guess, uh, I guess I was, you know, adequate enough to uh, talking about that, so that's why you invited <laughs> me back to talk about apes. So yeah, well. Absolutely. Should, I, should I return my uh, film critic card and then just change into a zoologist or something like that? Yeah, I know. well, that's not the animal connection's not even the only one. It's uh, when we were when I was getting you know the the lineup of guests for these nine movies. I I sent you a few. I'm like, hey, we should get you back on the show. I have lots of apes to talk about. And this of the four or five options I think I gave you, you were like, I'll I'll do Rise. Let's let's come on for that. So I guess the question is then, what what is it about franchise reboots 
that are kind of resurrecting a essentially dead franchise a, with a more grounded approach uh, into a new trilogy. What about that appeals to you? Because Rise of the Planet of the Apes, you know, Apes be rising, Batman be beginning. Uh, these are very similar, I'd say, thematically where these two franchises were. Uh, that's a really good question. And, uh, you know, I really ha- got to have to think about this because, you know, we're dealing with very different animals here. Definitely. Um, I guess, um, well, for this case, I guess what really appeals to me is just that, you know, uh, aside from the uh, notion that, you know, when you can start from a clean slate and then you're going to try to reach the, uh, you know, like supposedly you're going to try to reach the full potential of the uh, of the premise of the uh the premise of the source material, right. if, if I may add that, then, um, you know, I'm, I'm all for it. Because for the case of the Planet of the Apes series, I guess um, it made that uh, fatal mistake of being too much of a, too much of an, you know, effects showcase as opposed mm-hmm. to, you know, trying to, Get the get the very relatable, quote unquote relatable <laughs> uh, yeah. concept going on alongside or even elevated so that it stands alongside the uh, the uh, how do you say it the more the more outlandish the the, the more impressive uh, elements of the thing. So yeah, when uh, when it's straight too far from that, so I just thought. So I just thought that, oh, okay. I mean, restarting it sounds sounds cool. Uh, we'll see. Uh, uh, let's see. Let's see how it goes. Yeah. Yeah, and and the Batman Begins uh, comparison is something that obviously I've I've noticed, but even the director of this movie, Rupert Wyatt, even he was like, yeah, you know, it's like Batman Begins. We're taking that kind of approach to apes, and I I think it's what's interesting about that, as you were sort of alluding to, is. It really focuses you to go back and say, okay, what is the essence of that property? Like, what is it about that character or that world that audiences are responding to? And how do we redefine it in, you know, it sounds, it's cliche now, obviously, but in like a post 9-11, like how, what if this, what if, what would this be like if it really happened? What is the grounded, gritty, et cetera, version of this? Like, how do we make it more plausible? Whereas, you know, the... The apes movies of the 60s and 70s, those were much more like, you know, elevated, if we can borrow that term from the horror genre for a minute, uh, elevated B-movies, essentially. It's like, you know, this outlandish premise that wouldn't have been out of place in the 50s, like Planet of the Apes, a planet ruled by apes, you know, Um, and then putting thought-provoking ideas into that and social commentary and all of that. And yeah, I think you're right. The Burton movie focused so much on the aesthetics and and the production design and the makeup, which was amazing in that film, and uh, didn't really focus on all of the you know the story elements, the character elements uh, that made Cornelius and Zira and even Taylor uh, in the original films really work. And here, it's kind of I think I think this movie sort of splits the difference in a in a much uh, in a much tighter way. Um, 
but before we before we get into this and and you know all of this conversation preamble is making me think that whenever we get to Casino Royale, I'm gonna have to be like, hey, when you want to do another another reboot of a franchise? Um, so do you uh, have to ask? Because you know we're going Batman and Robin to Batman Begins. We're going Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes to this movie, and then that one's obviously Die Another Day to, to Casino Royale. They're very similar tracks. Everything in Hollywood is reactive, and I think these three franchises really highlight that. But before we get into Rise, like tell people a little bit about everything you have going on. I always like to give you you all a uh, I like give my guests a you know a spotlight at the beginning of the show to do that. So tell people what you have going on. Um, and, uh, by going on like at the moment or at the moment, where are you, where are you writing? Where can people find your, your stuff? Uh, oh, you know, uh, yeah, you're, you're a busy guy. This is your, this is your one of two chances to, to, uh, to get the word out on all the great stuff you're doing. Yeah. And now that you mention it, I, I've been, I've been leaving a lot of footprints, huh? So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Retrace so, your steps. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess it's a, you know it's kind of like Mission Impossible without <laughs> Ethan Hunt of you know, doing that, like knowing where I've been. But uh, I know I've been like outlet hopping uh, all over. So uh, I guess the you know mainly right now, if you know if you have to if you know if one per if a person has to ask, then. I would say that I'm mainly affiliated with uh, Fangoria, uh, Slash Realm, and uh, The Spool. But obviously, like I said, you know, I I go where I go where the winds of writing take me. So you go where you're needed. I'm sorry, what? You go where you're needed. Yes, yes. Yeah. I, I go where I'm desired. So yeah, <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah. So I guess it's just best, you know, to follow me on my social and you know the usual twitter at noe318 on facebook win.lay.334 and recently i also made an instagram you know yay congrats <laughs> you know please clap uh it's uh the v Hoovy. so it's uh so it's actually a pun a bilingual pun because Vic and uh, Vic is Vietnamese, but Vic is uh, Vietnamese for writing, and it basically uses the same letter. So hey, you know, nice. uh, you know, story time. Uh, yeah, it's T H E V I E T W H O V I E T. So yeah, there's me. If uh, if I ever write something somewhere, and if you follow me there, you will surely be the first people to know. I love that. I love that when when you ask someone what what they have going on and they direct you to their social media, that's a humble way of saying, I don't have time to give you links to everything that I'm doing. So just follow me here and I'll I'll keep you up to date. I love it. That's great. I, I mean <laughs> I mean if you have to paint me like that, like No, that's a, that, you're like, yeah, I mean no, no, you have a lot going on and I think uh, you know, social media is the most direct way to funnel everything into one place. I think that's smart. Yeah, um, you know, and I guess the way that you describe me like that, you know, it makes me feel like, you know, I'm wearing a suit and then just, you know, uh, scrubbing a cat's head really gently, <laughs> really menacingly. But while I'm actually here in my pajamas or, you know, just the upper part is the pajama, but then, you know, the rest is just like a really you know, shorts. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There you go. Now we all have that mental picture. Um, so what is your history with, 
Planet of the Apes with this franchise. When did you when did you uh, first land on the Planet of the Apes? Uh, what what movie was your sort of introduction? Um, okay, so this is going to be I don't know, really embarrassing, or it's going to make this episode really controversial. But you know what the hell? You ask, I'll share. Uh, so. My first brush with this franchise was, you know, Planet of the Apes from Tim Burton. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, I uh, vividly remember that I was doing homework. And this was me in, I guess, middle school. So, yeah, I was doing homework. But, um, you know, I had a bad habit back then, you know, doing homework and turning the TV on at the same time. And Planet, Planet of the Apes was on. And... It was on Star Movies. Uh, that's the name of the channel. It was on Star Movies, and I think it was around 7 p.m. or something like that, which is usually the time where they show kind of like you know the uh, big blockbusters and all that sort of stuff. But anyway, so uh, I'm not sure if I understood everything because you know back then my English wasn't so good, and mm-hmm. you know. Fun fact for listeners, if you, you know, if you didn't know already, English is my second language. So I'm not sure if I understood everything, but I remember being extra, extra impressed uh, with, you know, the makeup. Yeah. And, uh, but however, I I knew that our lead star is uh, Mark Wahlberg. And however, this is me knowing him. Before knowing about him, you know, blinding a Vietnamese uh, man and yeah. being a quote-unquote hero, had he been on a hijack plane, I also remember, you know, looked up at the right time to be confused as heck as to why one of our leads missing airport uh, spaceship crash landed before Simeon Lincoln, and then the film ends. Mm-hmm. So I just thought, what? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the general consensus, I think, with that ending. Uh. But uh, you know, the the you know the the images they they stayed yeah. with me, even though I, even though I didn't think much about the the film, and I would say that I I didn't even you know bother seeking out the rest of the franchise <laughs> afterward. And it was only then afterward when uh, you know the announcement of. Rise of the Planet of the Apes, you know, the film that we're discussing today, it was only until then that I was like, huh, okay. I kind of remember Simeon Lincoln. Does this have anything to do with that? Oh, it does. It's actually rebooting it. Okay, I'm interested now. So, you know, <laughs> there we go. That's my history of it. My I feel like, history with it. I feel like this was... This was very much kind of a sleeper hit, I feel like, in, t- in, tw- in 2011. Like, it came out and everyone was skeptical, like, mm, I don't know, that didn't work so well the last time you did it a decade ago. And then it came out and it got positive, you know, buzz and and also obviously, you know, the mocap, which we'll talk about and all of that. And then it slowly turned around to the tune of $481 million worldwide on a $93 million, million budget. Uh, and it, it's now, you know, the franchise is in full swing. And I think this it's interesting when a movie is able to sort of win back audience goodwill after a decade plus of, you know, either dormancy or, you know, less, you know, subpar product. 
And I, and I, and yeah, it's, it's really, it's, it's in kind of an interesting case study that this movie was able to do that because by all accounts, this shouldn't have worked. And yet here we are. Yep. That is indeed the case. And, uh, you know, actually, uh, uh, so, uh, you know, sorry for cutting you off, but yeah, that's I fine. guess, I guess the, yeah, this is pretty much the, you know, one of the prime examples or, you know, at least, you know, one of the newer examples of, you know, what is a sleeper hit because yeah. truly it just, it just outdid expectations and it's just climb over every single, you know, uh, standards placed on it possible so there we go yeah i mean it's it's a it's a movie no one and everybody probably dismissed at the time and yet you know it, it reinvented this franchise in such an interesting way uh in fact co- one of the co-writers rick jaffa calls this a reinvention and he says that he would lean towards reboot over prequel and yet the director calls it a prequel of the uh the original film's do, do you have a, a stake in, in the whole reboot versus prequel debate over this one? Have, did you ever go back and, and see the original films, for example? Um, no, actually, like I haven't I haven't even, you know, at the time, but yeah. I did. But I did know that, you know, there is there are a whole lot of films, you know, obviously the 1968 one starring Charlton Heston. That's like a must watch. But, you know. The thing about the thing you know, the thing about every single person who you know who's into movies, they have a really huge backlog. So mm-hmm. I haven't had the time to do that yet. But maybe, maybe after this discussion, I'm gonna shuffle things around, and then this is going to be at the you know, top of the to do. Well, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes comes out in 2024. So if nothing else, I think. But that's a good excuse to be like, oh, I'm going to watch those for research so I can write about the franchise uh, <laughs> when the new film comes out and just, you know, chalk it up to that. Um, yeah, it's I the first movie, obviously, is a classic. And then the sequels, as people have heard by now, I have uh, it's a, kind of mixed thoughts on a, on a couple of them. Uh, but overall, it's really it's really interesting trajectory that this franchise takes uh, just within those first five movies before we even get to the other iterations. And this one actually incorporates a lot of the the plot elements from Conquest, uh, Conquest, the Conquest of or Conquest Four. I can't ever remember that. Uh, Conquest, the Apes movie that has Conquest as the first word, uh, it, it, which also tackles the the ape revolution. Uh, has a character named Caesar, and there's a lot of callbacks, obviously, in this movie that um, that reference the uh, usually the original film. There's a, a Lego Statue of Liberty that Caesar's holding at one point. There's the the telecast with the Icarus ship going off into space, which is either canon or just a callback reference Easter egg, depending <laughs> on where you land on the prequel <laughs> and reboot debate. Um, the only one that I think is is really lame is the um, you know we have Tom Felton, Draco Malfoy himself in this movie say get your you know get your hand off me you damn dirty apes which is feels really shoehorned in there to be like, ha I remember, remember when, <laughs> when uh, Charlton Heston said that? And we're like, yeah, yeah, we get it. You know, uh, most of them are pretty smooth. I was going to ask you if you think this movie balances the callbacks and the references, but you know, you don't, you don't really have the context. So for you, did anything in this movie, just knowing the impact of the original film, did anything in this movie really stick out to you as a sore thumb 
as being like, hey, you know that thing you you remember? We're doing that again, but in a slightly different way. Um, obviously, the uh, the uh, was a spaceship called Icarus or something. Yeah, the, uh, yeah. Obviously, the you know the whole spaceship launching, and then we have you know the very uh, you know in a very particular sequence in the film where you know the newspaper just says you know. I lost in space, and then I was like, "Oh, so the Marky Mark was on that." Then okay, okay, I see where we're, I see where we're heading. So, well, Marky Mark or Charlton Heston, it's unclear because there's no, there's no. Uh, I don't think they named this the astronauts that were on that that no, vessel they, in this no, movie. They, they just leave it open, yeah, and because you know, and because after all, you know, what they were trying to do is just kind of like. The clean slating the thing so you know, right. it's just like okay let's just you know let's just drop these in for you know for the people who know and then just drop it enough and then you know we're just gonna pop this package in front of their fortune and we're gonna leave we're right not gonna be there and then we're not gonna unbox it in front of them <laughs> we're just gonna pop it and then we're gonna leave like ups uh, or fedex or usps style you know, whichever carrier that does that to your home, it's just, you know, and I, th- and I think that it sticks out, but then yeah. it didn't poke my eye out. If, right. that's, if, if that makes it, sense. It's like, it, it plays to me a little bit like the, uh, the 2013 evil dead film where it's like, they, they just want to make sure they have plausible deniability. Like, is it a reboot? Is it a remake? Is it a, pre- uh, is it related okay. to it? Sequel, prequel, whatever. I don't know. You tell me like that way. Nobody's pissed off because it's unclear. Uh, t- TBD basically is the status of its connection to the other films, which I think is, is a pretty smart, is a pretty smart way to, to play that. Just, you know, best of both worlds. Right, right, right. Um, uh, also uh, the thing that I love about this movie is that it, it kind of takes the elements of the original film and, and subverts them. So like in the first film, uh, Charlton Heston's Taylor spends a lot of the time locked up and mistreated by the, by the apes in this movie, Caesar is caged and he's sort of mistreated by the humans. And so it, it does a lot of little connections between the two of them. And a lot of it, I think is, is just the basis of this film is just, you know, um, kind of swapping the perspectives a little bit, especially, you know, since this whole franchise as, as I've gotten into over these episodes, the whole thing is blurring the line between human and ape and, and who, which side is morally right in air quotes, which, you know, are, are we all doomed to repeat the same mistakes? There's a lot of thematic uh, thrust that these movies get off of that, that sort of shifting dynamic between humans and apes. Right. And um, it's the fact that, you know, you know, when you when you mentioned that and I just thought it's pretty interesting because uh, I think I read I think I read an interview somewhere where, you know, one of the uh, one of the uh, co-writers of the uh, film, uh, Rick Jaffa, he Mm -hmm. also he also read about uh, the fact that there is something here that could become a, you know, a, a new a new take on Planet of the Apes, it's that, you know, around around this time, around around this era, uh, people are actually, you know, more, shall we say, more courageous in terms of what kind what kind of animals they can choose to domesticate. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, some are actually, you know, uh, 
have you know AIDS as pets and uh, companions. So when you talk about you know blurring the lines, I also see kind of like a portal or you know kind of like a how do you call it? Just kind of like a flip or a switch, you know, mm-hmm. just a good just a good enough uh, point where we can really do a transition between, you know, the whole um, the whole story overall being from a absolutely relatable perspective of a human being on a planet on and in the planet of the apes. Now from, you know, actually assuming the perspective of the apes themselves, which yeah. is which is exactly you know what this is about. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. The the most human character in this movie is Caesar, and uh, I, I I think that that also that the like again the kind of balance between the 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 two sides I guess the two species in this uh, brewing conflict. Um, this movie, you know, was released, and it's pretty clear that like James Franco's Will Rodman is our entry point into this world. Of course, he's not in the sequels. And then little by little, Caesar just, it becomes clearer and clearer that Caesar's the lead to the point that in the third movie, it's him. And then the the only really main villain is a little girl who doesn't talk or a human is a little girl who doesn't talk another Nova, which is a callback to the original film. And then the human villain. So it's like completely swapped where in this movie, if you want to look at it from a certain perspective, you're like, the apes are going crazy and they're attacking us. They're the villains. Not really though. Like, you know, it's, it's a little deeper than that. It's all about, also about, I think perception versus reality. It's like, well, who are the villains in this scenario? Uh, I, I would say Draco Malfoy is one of the, the most, the most villainous character in this movie. Uh, Tom Felton's character who is, uh, who is also named Landon Do- or Dodge Landon, which is uh, a combination of the the names of the other two astronauts from the original film uh, who are on the ship with Charlton Heston, Dodge and Landon, uh, which I think is a little fun callback too. Ah, no wonder why it's just you know it's just scratching at the back of my head. It's just like yeah, there you go. <laughs> who who names their jobs like this? Oh, Dodge Landon. Like, ah, okay, okay, okay. It makes sense now. So thank you. So how do, how do you think? You know, do you think that? Will Rodman, do you think James Franco's character is a worthy sort of entry point into this world? Like, how do you feel about that character overall? I know James Franco as a personality is, has a lot of, you know, questionable issues going on in the last few years, but in this film, uh, how do you, how do you think his character holds up? Um, okay. I think uh, we're going to step in, well, or at least I, you know, I'm going to step in the first point where, you know, the, uh, this film, as much as I, you know, love it and, you know, I mm-hmm. rewatch it pretty often, but this is going to be the first point where I would say that where the film doesn't work mm-hmm. because, um, you know, we we kind of have like in this film the you know the doesn't work section of this film i have noted down here is that uh there's kind of like a domino or a cascading effect going on because you know the film moves really fast yeah and because the way that it moves really fast it really shows that you know the you know for both better and worse it really shows that you know humans 
in this new take on Planet of the Apes, they are going to be the inferior species. So, you know, in that inferiority, we can see that our leads are actors who can do more when only there's more given to them. And this is a big flaw when, you know, surrounding them, like surrounding uh, Freda Pinto and James Mm -hmm. Franco are, you know, actors who can do more with less. Like we're talking about John Lithgow and, you know, David Oyelowo. And it's just, you know, it's now that one is the thorn that sticks out and punctures your eyes. That's the flaw. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, it's true. Will to me in this film, you know, it's just he he's just a vessel for yes. for what the film is really about. And it's kinda like the bump, the speed bump that you have to, you know, run over before you can get to the good things, before you can really, you know, make your car uh you know, reach the speed limit that you want it to. Mm-hmm. whatever even if it's a corolla you know it can, it can basically it can do better than uh 10 miles per hour you know but this here is the bump that forces you to go down to 10 and below in order to you know cross over so now you, you mentioned a couple things that i that i definitely had in my notes one the the pacing of this thing is very tight this is like a hundred and what 105 minutes movie yes and it's, it's by it's like i think at least a half hour shorter than the next two movies. Um, and it, it's pretty clear to me that, for, for, first of all, this is the most plot driven of this trilogy. They have to now lay the groundwork for how we get to a planet of apes, how it rises. Like, how does that, how do we get from the civilization as we know it now to, oh, the apes are rising up and now they're super smart and now they're taking over, you know. Uh, and we're we're sort of becoming subservient to the apes. Like they they have to do this movie. First of all, I think this is probably for me. This is probably my my least favorite of the trilogy, but it's still a really strong film. And I think it's because it has so much ground to cover, like so much work it has to do to get this franchise to where it needs to be for the next film to pop off. And you know, I, I think it's it's very apparent to me that. The writers, the director knew that the human side of things is pretty flat because they they jump through this as soon as possible. You get to an adult adult Caesar in less than thirty minutes. There we, we go. Get exactly. Thirty seven minutes in is when he, Caesar is caged, and I wrote it down when he's you know when he attacks the neighbor, and then uh, Will has to take him to, to you know to that like I don't know wherever what is that exactly it's like a shelter essentially yeah primate shelter um to to cage caesar and that's when the movie that's when the movie really starts that's when it it hits the next the next gear up and i i think franco is he's fine at this but there's not a whole lot he can do to make this guy interesting because in comparison to what andy circus is doing and what caesar's story is you know at least we have Oh, you know, we have that James Franco gives us that entry point in that he's he's a chemist and he's working to solve to uh, to cure Alzheimer's. And that, first of all, sounds like the plot to Deep Blue Sea from 1999. <laughs> people have seen that, which is interesting. <laughs> and so I was watching this. I was like, because it'd been a while since I'd seen this. And I was like, did Deep Blue Sea inspire this movie? Because that's exactly the story in Deep Blue Sea. And then here the apes get smart and 
and run amok. And in there, I'd like, oh, we made super smart sharks. Whoops. Whoopsie. Um, and uh, so, you know, that I think is an interesting hook, even though it's been done before. Um, it's it, it's uh, it really stands out to me. Like you said, David Oyelowo uh, and Brian Cox, great actors doing oh, kind yes. of very flat characters. Uh, John Lithgow, I think, ha- ha- does the has the most to do and I think delivers probably the air quotes best of the human character performances and even his is kind of one note, but what they did to Frida Pinto in this thing is just really sad. Like she's got nothing to do. <laughs> this is just a couple years after Slumdog Millionaire and she absolutely. was like yeah. poised to be a big star. And then this movie, I didn't even know her character's name. I had to look it up. To Carol, be like, What's, what Caroline, is right? Yeah. But I don't even think they say it in the movie. No, they, she's just the girlfriend. They did. They did. But it's just like you said, the, the way that, you know, the, the, the way that they wrote her is just, you know, it's just embarrassing. And especially the fact that, you know, to, in uh, interviews and all that sort of stuff, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Frida Pinto, she said that, you know, she based her characters uh, on and from watching a whole lot of videos of, you know, I guess the, I would say, the icon in terms of, you know, Simeon or, you know, primate interaction, Jane Goodall. And it's it's Mm -hmm. just, and then it's just, oh, so this is the result. This is the fruit of all your research. And it's just, it's just, I mean, whoa. She could have been. (laughs) Material cut or just, 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 yeah. I, I, I wonder the script that she saw, if there was more for this character and they were like, nope, nope, nope. We're focusing on Caesar. We have very little of Will at a certain point, very little, very, very little of Caroline. Um, but yeah, that's, it's a bummer. Of, yeah, and speaking of which, another, you know, another, uh, you know, uh, you know, female character, another uh, another woman in this film also, also got, let's say, well, from my perspective, also got undermined. It's, uh, you know, the, uh, the uh, female ape Cornelia. Mm-hmm. She yeah. has, uh, she has extra scenes. And uh, there's an there's another subplot. I am sure of it because I have seen TV spots where uh, Caesar interacted with uh, Cornelia, and it's just and actually, I would say that you know those glimpses, the shots of you know the, those interaction are actually what hooked me into like oh I'm gonna see this film. I'm gonna have to see this film like. Fast and Furious, like, but and then when I saw the film, I was like, "Wait, that scene, those scenes didn't pop up. I wonder yeah. why." And you know, it's just uh, so. What you said about the pacing being really tight, I guess it's the movie's charm, but it's also a thorn, or it's also mm. a drawback. Yeah, it's ticking boxes. It's like, and how did he get? And then he has to get here, and then he has to meet the apes, and then other apes have to kind of raise up to his level, and then you know they're, they're setting up this entire the human character. <laughs> None of these characters are important in the grand scheme of the trilogy, nor do any of them return. But every one of those apes established in the the uh, in the sanctuary there in the shelter. Um, Sanctuary is too nice of a word for what that place is. Shelter. That's why I corrected myself. Maurice, Rocket, uh, you know, Cornelia, obviously, Koba in a tremendous way. Some of the actors, some of the mocap actors replaced for the, the, the second film because 
the uh, the characters became more prominent. But Karen Cannavale and Terry Notary as Maurice and Rocket, they're in place from the beginning. And those characters are like, you know, Caesar's left and right hands throughout this this trilogy. And I think even those characters who don't speak and who don't even, most of them don't even sign, it's really just Maurice because they established in this movie that Maurice was was uh, working in the circus and so learned some of the basic hand, uh, you know, ASL um, signs. I think those characters are way more compelling than all the, exactly. you know, all the other human stuff, <laughs> which in a way I guess makes it easier when the, the apes kind of, you know, go wild on uh, on the human characters. You're like, ah, that's fine. I didn't really need to save David Oyelowo or, or Tom Felton or whatever. It's fine. They're, they're not that um, Yeah. I did find out that Tobey Maguire was apparently at one point attached to play Will. I don't know if he would have been better or worse. Or if- Are you serious? I missed out on that. What? Yeah. Yeah. Which is funny that they're like, ah, we'll get the other guy from Spider-Man. Uh, and that's just where they landed <laughs> on it. But... I don't know. He might have been. Maybe he would have been a little better. I feel like James Franco just, as an as a, an actor, just has a little inherent smugness to him. That maybe Tobey Maguire he because he sells Tobey Maguire is really good at selling the sort of you know uh, earnestness and sort of mm-hmm. aw shucksness. Like even in in you know, obviously in Spider Man, but also things like Pleasantville and Cider House Rules and things like that. Uh, Seabiscuit, like he feels mm-hmm. Seabiscuit. I was about to. Say. I think he would have been. Yeah, I think he might have been a. a a better fit since we're supposed to care about Will uh, through Caesar's eyes. Yeah. Thoughts and, on that? You know, and basically it's just, uh, he, he is, he is one of those actors who can do more with less, you know, it's just, mm-hmm. absolutely. Uh, you know, not saying that, you know, James Franco is bad or anything, but he He's can, only, he can yeah. only do more when there's more, you know, like I said before. So, right. You know, Toby McGuire could have been a better choice because when, um, I guess, you know, like I, you know, like I told you, I, I rewatch this film very often and every time I get to see or become aware, you know, my senses become aware that, you know, Will is our, is our, basically the audience surrogate. Mm-hmm. I just keep thinking that uh, anybody else can play this role. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So it's just James Franco is replaceable not irreplaceable so you know who's not replaceable is andy circus because no no even though which you set me up for a, the perfect kind of anti-segue i guess in a way <laughs> like opposite of that guy is this guy um he we had already obviously seen him do Gollum and king kong and the peter jackson version of that story but yet still in this he's i i, I had in my notes that he's kind of a revelation in this, but he's not because we'd seen him do amazing things. But I would argue this is an even more accomplished performance than Gollum is. Uh, and it gets even better in the next two movies. It's uh, yeah. What do you have to say about Andy Serkis as Caesar? Cause this is a, this is the, for my money, the strongest argument thus far, why we need a, an Academy award you know, category for mocap or, or, you know, I always like to phrase it as like alternative media performance because that way you can put yeah. voiceover, you can put mocap, like something to recognize performances that are clearly performances by an actor that are not traditionally, you know, like on camera, traditional acting performances. Uh, this is the, he's like the, 
the pinnacle of, of why of what I would show someone of like, look, this needs to be recognized, this kind of accomplishment. Absolutely. I don't even know what I can add to that. Except for I guess maybe this, you know, anecdote about, you know, his performance in uh, here yeah. in Rise of the Planet of the Apes and obviously the uh, you know, the whole news uh, series in general. So Andy Serkis in here, he's not just great, but he's phenomenal. This is, I would say, one of his career-defining performances. And yep. it got to a point, it reaches a point. I'm not, I'm not going to use past tense here. It reaches a point where um, I guess everyone in my family, after I showed them this film, and then I... Uh, and then they would ask, or I would tell them that, you know, Caesar is actually uh, an actor, a proper actor mm-hmm. playing it. And it got to the point where, you know, Andy Serkis pops up in certain films, in in, in other films, uh, you know, it reaches the point where, you know, my family members, they would say that this is Caesar, right? Or <laughs> I remember my, I think it was, I think it was my mom. Iconically, she says that um, this guy, you know, being Andy Serkis, this guy, he's he's wearing a human suit. He's an ape wearing a human suit. He is Caesar <laughs> in a human it suit. Yeah, exactly. That, sense. that yes. would make more sense than what we what we see. Honestly, absolutely. Yeah, and it, it, it you know it got it got to that point where I also was kind of like you know, quote unquote, infected with that notion. And, you know, him showing up in Black Panther and I just thought, what the hell is Caesar doing here? <laughs> but, so, you know, it's that that is such an impactful performance. And yeah. I don't think I don't think we're going to I don't think the ink is going to ever, you know, become dry, you know, writing, uh, you know, waxing poetic about his performance here. But however, I would say that maybe I'm going to use this space just to uh, praise uh, actress Karen Conoval playing mm-hmm. Maurice as well. Yeah. <laughs> Maurice, Maurice is also, you know, like the best of the human actors in the, in this film doing a lot with uh, less. And it's just, you know, that kind of, uh, playing that role where you know the um, the the savant the the person the the savant who knows a lot but then mm-hmm. actually becomes cynical in that sense and then still gets to be very impressed with you know uh, realizing who you're working with and the the vision of the of the of the uh, of uh, Simeon family members that you will get to work with as well and you know Conoval she portray all of that through Maurice and the fact that you know I <laughs> I didn't I didn't make this connection like early on but that you know uh she is all she was also she's also the court uh clerk in the film you know oh wow the, yeah the I, one with, the one who says you know nine days sir man you know you're lucky that we were talking about court oh days. yeah that that's was her. her wow that's Maurice <laughs> and oh my gosh that's so funny and of course, Terry Notary and Toby Cavill, they mean they, they are becoming, you know, the premier names in, in terms of versatility and then in terms of, uh, you know, dramatic, 
chameleon-esque ability here. And it's just, you know, basically, I guess what I'm trying to say here is that these are the people that the industry should stop giving the cold shoulder to. Yeah. Because, you know, they 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 give a lot. They, they, they give a lot of, you know, of their skills and of their art into the film. And obviously a whole lot of pixels and, you know, artificial muscles and riggings are put on top of their performance. But they were so excellent in the sense that when the, the more that the more that I would watch uh, these uh, the, the film uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, the more that I would see that, you know, these apes, the more that I would see the, the actor, I would actually the actor and the actress playing the apes, not. Mm-hmm the apes themselves, if, if you know what I mean, if, if that makes yeah. sense. But it's just, you know, I would, the, their artistry is so good that they penetrate through the pixels and the, and the math of it all. So, Yeah, no, absolutely. The performances really shine through here. And I think it's, it's testament to the difference between CGI and mocap that the only part in which Caesar is not being played through by Andy Serkis through mocap is when Caesar is a baby, right? <laughs> which is why that that those are probably the the iffiest of visual effects in this movie. Like I think the visual effects for the most part really hold up, especially all the mocap stuff, like we were just saying. But like the CG baby Caesar is the it has aged the poorest of everything in this movie, I would say by a significant margin. And it's, it's, always, it's always, yeah, you can't get babies, right? They, they used a, a, apparently they used like a human baby, like at least as a reference, like watching the footage and be like, Oh, we got to make the, make baby Caesar move this way or whatever. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, there's also a one-to-one comparison here too, because Terry notary, the, the, you know, has played, done a lot of, of mocap stuff, Groot and all that stuff in the MCU and, worked on the Hobbit films and all that. But Terry Notary played Gordy in Jordan Peele's Nope. Yes. Like last year to the point that, and it just goes to show you how far mocap has come that I went to see that film and the whole Gordy storyline obviously is very impactful uh, to see for the first time because it's so traumatic to watch uh, for the characters and everything. And afterwards I looked it up. I'm like, wait a minute, how did they do that? Like, that, was that CG? What, what was going on? How did they? And I came to find out it was mocap, and it was Terry Notary because that looked like a Gordy looked like even more real than the apes in this movie. Right. And I think it's you. You see, ten years or so on for how much how how much that that technology has advanced. Absolutely, and uh, also I would say that it it also helps uh, as well. Besides the fact that Nope is a newer movie, but also. Mm-hmm. The, the the sequences where um, Terry Notary slash Gordy's uh, performance uh, are in is um, that that uh, the, the the whole setup it's, it's simpler than in Rise of the Planet mm-hmm. of the Apes. However, that doesn't mean that I'm d- diminishing Notary skill, right? In any way, shape, or form. But it's <laughs> but it's interesting that you um, that uh, you know you say uh, you you describe to me the moment that when you found out. I was no. like, I was like, uh, in the opening credits, and then they run through the names of people, you know, Stephen um, Kiki Palmer, Daniel Kaluuya, and then it, and then it says Terry Notary, and then I was like, I bet every single person in this auditorium 
$10. Terry Notary is Gordy. Just like, yeah. just like off the cuff. And I know that I will win. I, I was that arrogant. And I know that, and I know that my arrogance will be answered too. It got to that point, you know. Vindication. Yes. Um, but 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 when you saw Nope for the first time and you saw that sequence with Gordy at the very beginning of the movie, were you like, oh, that's mocap? Or were you sort of like, hmm, how did they do that? Like, is it is it compositing different things together with a real chimpanzee? Like, what is going on? Exactly. I, it did not feel like mocap to me, at least right off the bat. I, uh, okay, let's say my brain is like 10 parts. So I was like, three parts of it, I'm sure yeah. that it was mocap. But then, you know, the seven of it was just me on the edge of my seat, <laughs> ripping the yeah. armrest because I have, I have uh, encountered, I have been in a situation where uh, I recognized what was going on. And what was going mm -hmm. on was that, you know, you were in the sight of a, of an animal that you shouldn't, that doesn't want your presence. So right. I was like, oh, okay, okay. I know what's, I know what's up here, but maybe it's a mocap, but I know what's up here. So, you know, it was yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're so caught up in the the uh, the story and what's happening in the film that you don't really think about the technology used mm -hmm. to do it until after the fact. Then you're like, ah, Terry Notary, of course, that makes sense. It all, it's all coming together. Um, yeah, I, I, I yeah, I think it, it, the visuals here are pretty astounding. Even like 12 years later, I think they they have aged remarkably well, uh, and yet still improve going forward. Mm -hmm. I, I like the. Um, I wanted just to go through a little bit of some of the, the things in here that I that, that I really enjoyed. Uh, the the specks of green in Caesar's eyes that's like part of uh, part of the that's like proof that 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 character that the ALZ one twelve was carried over uh, to to Caesar genetically. That's something that's a detail that carries into the other films, but is not really kind of focused on again. Um, but I did love some of the the moments in this movie because this. He, as much as we said the human characters are not particularly compelling, there's a lot of heart in this film that, that it mm -hmm. gets from the Will and Caesar relationship. You have, first of all, you have the the reveal that Bright Eyes, which is again a call, which is a callback to the original movie because that's what they called Taylor, uh, the Charlton Heston character. Um, that Bright Eyes was protecting her her infant. I think that's there's there's some heartbreaking moments in this film, Absolutely. such as that. Um, there's the, uh, the other moment in the car when Caesar's questioning, am I a pet? You know, asking about his, his history and where he comes from. We'll speak to the, the sort of thematic kind of, cause it's, it, there's a coming of age movie too, like sandwiched in like the, in the middle of middle act of this film. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you know, the moments that, the moments that you listed it, it all just lines up with, uh, I assume what the film is trying to say. Uh, I think it's a. I think it's a pretty cool notion. Is that yeah. you know we as human beings we have the vision to see the limits, but then the means to cross them are you know reside in other species, and mm -hmm. I think that also plays into the bigger picture of you know the source material from uh, Pierre Boulle about you know how this is you know how he created uh, you know the planet of the ape story as kind of like uh, a social fantasy but then also i would say 
pretty much like a cautionary tale. Yeah. It's, you know, it's that sometimes things, things do run its course. And the more that, the, uh, not the more, but then the sooner, the earlier that we can open our, ourselves up to that, uh, the better. And, you know, evolution, I think, in some way is, you know, equivalent to annihilation. But then in here, it's just, it doesn't seem so scary. I, I, I don't know if that makes sense. And I think it's and I think it's a topic that, you know, we <laughs> that we can, you know, talk about in a different podcast, uh, to, in, a, in an entire different episode together, you know, well, hint hint uh, Alex Garland's annihilation. But you know, it's uh, but basically that's that's what I'm saying because this one, even though it moves and it functions like a blockbuster, but then it has a whole lot of pockets and it, it has it, it's built on a foundation that is with a lot of thought so that it's so it moves pop but then it's uh it's internals are thinking persons if that makes sense yeah yeah no it, i mean it's the classic sci-fi trope of also playing God and, you know, the, the hubris of man to take control of the animals and think that, that they can, uh, you know, that they can do whatever they want without consequence and subvert the, the natural order of things, et cetera. And even when it's, and this tends to carry on throughout this franchise and specifically in this trilogy, even when it's with, you know, good intentions as James Franco is trying to find a cure for this disease to, to help his father and, you know, millions of other people that have similar uh, illnesses. He, even then it, it goes awry. He crosses a line and uh, he suffers the consequences. And I think the, you know, the ultimately the, the thesis of this movie is that humanity is, is going to, is going down that road. They're going to destroy themselves in one way or another. It's part of why I joked about uh, on other podcasts. And like when I've been in these episodes, I've, I've joked about like how uh, I saddled myself with nine episodes of being like, yeah, so uh, we're all doomed. And um, <laughs> the, the planet's going to, we're destroyed. We're slowly destroyed. There's a lot of, you know, climate change commentary in there and, and uh, racial commentary. There's a lot, there's a lot baked into this, concept of humanity destroying itself uh turning against uh, turning against other other parts of humanity turning against the animals the animals rebelling again and then 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 there's factions within the ape society and all that like it's sort of flips around where apes are then kind of making the same mistakes and their their world is mirroring the fragmentation in in our own we even see this even the, in this film the seeds for that are already pretty laid out we get coba introduced here with the, the 113 tested on him. So he's kind of a parallel to Caesar, but then Koba and Caesar, their ideologies, there are already the conflicts already happening at the end of this film with Caesar sparing Jacobs, the yellow character and Koba, not exactly doing the same thing, <laughs> pushing them <laughs> off the side, which it's, it's kind of the, you know, it's the, to go back to black Panther reference, it's kind of the T'Challa killmonger thing. It's like, well, I understand both point of views, one is way more intense and aggressive, but also in part justified, at least, you know, the, the motivation is justified. The, the, um, the perspective is valid, whether it's, you know, whether they go too far or not. And I think it's, it's, I, I've always forget going back to this movie, how delicately they lay that out 
that the 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 sort of bifurcation of the apes that's already sort of happening, uh, you know, beneath the surface in this film. Right, and you know, it really denotes that. Um, how do how do we say it? Like intelligence doesn't automatically mean an awareness of who's the leader for you to follow, mm-hmm. but you know, intelligence uh, is that alongside with being aware of the situation enough so that you can make your own choices. And right. that is, and you know, again, there, again, you know, it's what works for the film. It's also, you know, the charm of the film is also its drawback, but then I guess there's more the, you know, the charm outweighs the drawback here. It's that, you know, it moves really fast, but then the way that it delivers every a point that it wants to make was done in a really concise and, you know, this is a really efficient blockbuster. Yeah, absolutely. I have to say so. And it's also one of those things where a certain sequence of events has to happen exactly so in order for character to go in this direction, because there's, if he hadn't attacked the neighbor, he wouldn't have been locked up in the shelter. And then he wouldn't have, had the the that empathy that he has for the other apes that empathy that he learned from you know the drug that he inherited that's in his system in his genetics but also the example of will and his family taking care of him and loving him and so he learns sort of the weight of responsibility that no i can't leave these apes i have to help them i'm uniquely positioned to to liberate them or to at least improve their situation here and I think that's a really, it's a really interesting point that the film makes sort of jumping off what you were saying that yes, he has the intellect, but he also has the compassion. He has the ability to, he ha- he feels the responsibility of, um, of helping others of his kind. And you kind of see that, that rift growing with him and will already in that scene. It's like, you know, he, he, he lives with the humans. He's too ape for the humans and he hangs with the, with the apes and he's too human for the apes. And I think it's that, it's there's a pendulum. There's like a, a seesaw situationing happening situation happening in this this trilogy where Caesar's in the middle and humanity or apes are on both sides and he's just trying to to placate both and protect his protect uh, the apes but also keep the humans at bay but also not annihilate the humans unless he has to and I think that all of that characterization is in here already and I think that's so impressive considering this film covers from before his birth all the way until, you know, until they, they storm the golden gate bridge and make it over into the redwoods. Yep. And, uh, you know, and now that you, now that you mentioned the redwoods, it's just, I like the fact that, you know, the, um, the visuals, the visuals in the film and, you know, um, uh, when talking about this, I'm actually kind of like a little bit sad because we're going to have to talk about Andrew Lesney. And, mm-hmm. you know, he just, I think he just left us too soon. But um, anyway, um, the visuals in this, I just thought that, you know, subsequent watches of this film, there's there's something that you can, you know, not, not something, sorry, force of habit. There's a lot that you can pick apart from there. It's just that, for some, for some reason, I feel that uh, when it focuses on the apes or Caesar, it would 
it would move or it would be framed in a way that you know it enlarged them it it really makes mm-hmm. them dominant and when it focuses on the humans it actually makes them feel smaller it always crap them it's always box them it's less dynamic and then it's just yeah. you know it's just kind of like a visual hint to the fact that you know all humans you're y'all going to be screwed you know so it's just <laughs> and i mean um you know if you have to ask me that you know what is the kind of like quote-unquote oscar clip of this <laughs> of of this <laughs> of this film for right. me to pick from the only one sequence that i can pick i would say it's um uh, it's the uh a, a sequence that i called it you know the different morning sequence and you know when they uh, when every single ape has broken out of the shelter and then you know we cut to a neighborhood in the morning just you know yeah news, tossed in newspapers and then a uh, lady running and then you know the leaves are falling and then they look up and then they just see <laughs> shadow of apes it's amazing and the fact that you know they yeah. just they just toss in and then include a whole lot of falling leaves and it's just i don't know maybe this is just me reaching but i'm just going to say it anyway but then the falling leaves it really really remind me of the imagery of you know virus particles in the air yeah that could be But, that could be. No, that's but then, but then, it. But then, you know, if we equate that virus particles as leaves, then it's not, it's not artificial. But then it's just natural. But then it's organic. So things are going to change. But then this artificial, uh, this artificial change that is happening and everybody is seeing, it's just the natural order of things. So eventually, our planets are going to go to the apes. It's it's almost like it's making that statement, and it's it's just gorgeous. And you know, I'll, I'll, I'll you know I'll say it now. This film, when we whenever we talk about it, or whenever somebody talks about it, the first thing that I'm always going to go back to is you know actually not Andy Serkis' performance, even though it's amazing, and we've talked about how amazing it is. The first yeah. thing that I would turn to is Andrew Lesney's cinematography. So. It's that effective. Yeah, I, there is there. Now that you mention it, there it does. The camera does tend to like. There's a lot of sweeping shots with uh, with the apes specifically. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of like panning over to um, to Caesar when he's you know at the window, or like really close up on him as he's looking out, sort of uh, you know wanting to be free from the from the attic, and then obviously the landscape shots later in the film and. And this isn't really, I wouldn't necessarily classify this as an action movie per se until the third act, because it's more of, I would say more of a sci-fi thriller for a lot of it. But that, that those action sequences at Genesis and on the Golden Gate Bridge, pretty thrilling, pretty good stuff. Oh, oh like, yeah. Oh yeah. Real fun. I say the third act of this film is if you, if I just happen to scroll on, to turn on the TV and scroll through the channels and then just, you know, caught it right there and then. It's exactly the kind of sequence where you know I would sit down and watch it, and yep. then you know by the time I realized it, that's the entire third act of the film. So I just watched <laughs> the whole film. Yeah, yeah, there's there's a real there's a real delicate balance too. I found that that Rupert Wyatt, the director, was trying to strike here between the ape violence versus the human violence. That people would um, the audiences would be 
more okay with the humans getting attacked than the apes. And it was also like trying to, which, you know, I, I guess kind of goes in, in line with generally, you know, a movie of uh, people rather watch the person, the people get like John wick murder a hundred people than the dog, get killed. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing, which makes sense. But it's also, there's a, there's like a, there's kind of a balancing act with the violence perpetrated on humans by apes. You know, how much of that is, is allowed to, uh, how much of that is, is allowed, is allowed to happen before the kind of loyalties, the audience loyalty shifts from side to side. Like, Caesar kills uh, Malfoy, Tom Felton's character, uh, but accidentally, you know, it's so there's, there's, it was in self-defense. It was an accident thing. And also, you know, it's not premeditated. He clearly has sort of instant remorse. It was not his plan to do that. Uh, So we go from like him saying no and kind of that fist pumping moment to, oh shit, he's in trouble now. Gotta get out of here. Um, and, and you see him actively stopping the apes from killing other people, which is something that the Caesar from the earlier franchise does in Conquest as well. Uh, as opposed to Koba, who's just like in cold blood going over and like knocking people off of bridges and stuff. Uh, I think right. that's, that's, it's again, with the balance of the human and the, and the apes, that dynamic, it's like, well, who, who whose side are we on exactly? And I think it's, it's pretty clear from the jump that we're way more invested emotionally in the apes. Um, yeah. So I'm trying to see if I have anything else in my notes. I feel like we covered a lot of this. We, we also have the, the, the supplicating gesture when he, he puts his hand out to get permission that carries over into Dawn. Uh, the, the apes together strong carries over throughout the whole trilogy. It's like, I've never watched these three movies in rapid succession. And even for this episode, I'm sort of watching them out of order. Uh-huh. Uh, having seen them before, obviously. Uh, but I, but I, I tend to think that these three movies watched either back to back to back or like on consecutive nights or something would really, it would really highlight how well they build on each other because there's a lot of stuff in here that is paid off in Dawn and war that I, again, even having seen all three of these movies totally forgot about. Uh, and I, and I thought that was, it's, you know, it's always, it's always cool when a, a film comes out and, and then the, the subsequent filmmakers are able to leverage the little seeds that were left in the previous film. And, and then Matt Reeves, obviously who did Dawn and war and then the Batman, uh, is kind of a master at, at taking, uh, taking IP in, in kind of a, an expansive direction. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And he, and I know for some people, for some viewers, this is kind of like a, you know, a movie going full pas. But it's just the uh, he really he really lets the the blockbuster aspects of the IP let's call it that he really mm-hmm. let them kind of like seep and more like tea, you know. So yeah. so it really ex- it, does it extend the film? Yes. I, I will say that. However, it's just it just makes you appreciate the I guess the world building more, and right. it's just uh, causes you to create certain connections that you otherwise wouldn't be able to, and you wouldn't expect to make. So it, it's the reason why I didn't mind a three-hour Batman film, and why I'm excited for the Penguin show. Mm-hmm. On I guess we're calling it Max now which is a really dumb name. Who's that? 
<laughs> Max. The, the 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 HBO Max is going to be called Max. So now oh, I'm talking about that. The, ah, you were talking about the platform. Ah, I, I was. Talking about someone. Okay. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> I don't know if I even. No, no. It's nobody named Max. Um, but it's why I'm looking forward to his his uh, Penguin show on on Max. Is that you know he, the world building? It's the kind of thing that you're either. If you have a certain amount of time in the night and you're like, okay, let's watch a movie real fast, probably not best to put on a Matt Reeves movie because they tend to be a little more reflective. Mm-hmm. And I think there's in that in that way, and that's maybe one of the only uh, ways in which these three movies don't completely gel is that this one is just like, go, 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 go. Okay, here we go. We're it's with Caesar. And then the third act becomes an action movie mm-hmm. uh, because the next two are way more consistently paced. They're way more character focused. They're way more, they're, they're more clearly from Caesar's POV. We open on Caesar's eyes in Dawn and mm-hmm. we close on Caesar's eyes in Dawn. Like it's, we're, we're not, humanity is kind of an afterthought to a certain extent in the next yeah, one. And certainly it, by the third film. They, they um, play, they play like uh, the kind of, uh, you know, nature documentaries. That just yeah. happened to have like a really good plot. <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot of apes uh, signing to each other and subtitles, and yet you're like hanging on every word that they're that they're signing. It's it's really it's really good stuff. Oh, and look, um, the documentary crew managed to film these apes taking over San Francisco. One jumps in a tank. One uses a tank as a uh, you know as a door rammer. Yeah. But anyway, speaking of which, I guess uh, I guess this is. Uh, I hope this is a good place to also bring up the fact that, you know, there's actually, there's like you mentioned, you know, at the start of this, like there's actually going to be another film after war. And I yep. just thought that, really? You really want to go that route? And it seems like they're serious about it, serious enough that they actually made, I would say, kind of like a big deal when, you know, a director was actually announced for the film. Yeah. And it's West Ball from the Maze Runner. And from those films, I just thought that, uh, okay, so it's going to move really fast again, right? So it's going to be really action-packed again, right? But is it going to be so action-packed to the point that it doesn't really have Rupert Wyatt human touches? Mm -hmm. Does it, is it going to really like ditch the balance and... Is it going to go? Is is the same cycle kind of happen again regarding the fact that somebody has realized that oh hey we're going to be able to squeeze a lot of uh, not squeeze we're going to be able to install a lot of you know modern technology and you know technical wizardry here and um, we're going to have a good fine product on our hands. Is it going to be like that? Is it going to be like Planet of the Apes 2001 again? The very film that I put on just to provide some background noise for for me doing homework? Is it going to be like that again? It's just, it's scary. And again, sometimes I like, I I wouldn't think about that film because it was just, it would just bother me so much after, after, after all that I've experienced, which is pretty much kind of like a perfect modern trilogy in our times. And mm-hmm. it's just, you know, sometimes you really have to let sleeping dogs lie or, you know, let the uh, uh, resting simian rest. <laughs> yeah. Like that. It, it's a risk. It's definitely a risk. I, I, I love 
trilogies in general. So the fact that we have this trilogy and it's Caesar's story from literally birth to spoilers, literally death. Uh, I, I love that it, it kind of exists as this, as this perfect thing. I would say a trilogy and people will hear me saying this in the next couple episodes as well, that is wildly underrated and should be more in the conversation of like some of the better trilogies and, you know, in of the last few decades. Um, what gives me some hope for kingdom is that Rick Jaffa and Amanda silver, uh, are both, you know, have written rise, dawn war and they're back back for kingdom. They're a husband and wife screenwriting duo. And they're at least working, putting some work into the screenplay. I don't know uh, how much of the final draft is going to have their work versus if they wrote the initial and then, you know, so that was torn to ribbons. Like I have no idea about that, obviously, but they're involved. So that gives me a little bit of, of, of hope that they're going to at least aim for a rise kind of level of uh, balance of, of spectacle and substance. So, yeah, so we'll, we will see, we'll see in 2024. I'm, I'm at the moment optimistic. Uh, but the, the only other thing I wanted to talk about before we, we move on, and I know we're running slightly late, uh, slightly long for this, but lots to talk about. This is recreating the whole world, the whole franchise um, is the ending. So it's sort of seeded throughout that ALZ 113 uh, is dangerous to humans. Franklin gets exposed. He passes it on to the neighbor, Hunsaker, I guess his name is, which is, I guess, his last name. his first name? Who knows? <laughs> anyway, um, not angry, important. Humans angry, not important. Angry Douglas. Mustang guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And who turns out to be a pilot, which is the reveal. So I love So one, we get the ending of Caesar is home, which is a great moment. It's both kind of shocking to James Franco and also has that, that again, that heart we were talking about. And then, so it's like triumphant for the apes and then re- really bad for the humans. Um, you know, I, I feel like it's almost a tradition for this series to have like a final kind of twist of the knife at the end as you're leaving. And when you go back and watch the original five movies, you'll see what I'm talking about. Some of the the way those movies end is completely insane. Uh, (laughs) Do you, do you think that was sort of again with that sort of economical efficient storytelling? Do you, do you like the way that this film just sort of says, uh, and then the virus went all over the world and then the movie, the next movie starts and they're like, yeah, humanity pretty much gone. It's been a couple of years or whatever. Do you like that? Or do you feel like we skipped over a story that could have been the next chapter? No, I just thought, I just thought that that ending was perfect. That the, the way it ends was the, the way it ends was just right. And the fact that, you know, we kind of have like, um, a, a repeat of that image right at the beginning mm-hmm. of, uh, uh, Dawn. It's, yeah. it was just, you know, like the end of the end of Rise has Earth kind of like lighting up, and then you know pockets of the uh, simian flu are everywhere on Earth. But then mm-hmm. you know dawn opens with you know those pockets that you've seen, but then they just dimmed out, and the lights are out. The lights of yeah. humanity are all out, so that it's just like it doesn't. So it doesn't feel like a part two in a sense, but then it just feels like you're just watching one continuous film. And yeah, just, oh, exactly. You know, so it's just, so I just thought that that was like, holy cow, that's good. <laughs> and it wasn't, yeah. and it wasn't even a twist, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't being twisty or anything. It's just a natural <laughs> progression of things. 
but that you still have to like collect your jaw off the floor because you were like, oh, angry neighbor oh. is a pilot. Yeah. Oh, it's, that's it's how. Like, <laughs> it's like not a twist and a twist at the same time. Right. Because like you said, the pilot reveal and also, you know, they establish it so briefly and sparingly throughout the movie that oh this who he sneezed oh he's, he sneezed blood that's no good he's out sick oh he passed it to the other guy okay what is that about well, there's so much business happening with caesar and the golden gate bridge that you kind of forget about that and then when it comes back at the end you're like oh so that's how we all go away <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's how the apes sort of inadvertently thin the herd of humanity um, to make it a, a planet of apes, I, I'd say, yeah, it, it's, it's very, it's very, yeah, it's very cool. Little, little, uh, again, like I said, a little twist of the knife to be like, yeah, guess what humanity you're screwed. Um, <laughs> um, as you're, as you're heading out with that Patrick Doyle score, which I think Patrick Doyle score also, by the way, pretty underrated. Uh, oh, I think he, yeah, his, yeah, his yeah. music here is great. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, the fact that, uh, Sometimes I thought that his uh, scores for blockbusters are usually so, like, muted. Like, mm-hmm. I know they're there, but then would I try to find and listen to them again? I won't. That's yeah. always the answer. But, however, for uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, I just, I was like, I, I still, I could still remember, like, watching the film. And then when it finishes, I was like, who's doing the music? I need yeah. to know your name. And then it was like, oh, it's the very guy that you said that, you know, scores blockbusters in a very muted way. And, you know, I I was impressed. I remember being very impressed. And the yeah. fact that, you know, it's just, I know the film has ended, but then, you know, when you see, when you see the maps of, you know, the <laughs> flight maps that pops, that, that creates new pockets of the simian flu with his score escalating, you're just like, oh, we are so expletive you know <laughs> so it's it's just appropriate yeah and then watching you know the the opening of dawn now it's like huh a deadly pandemic what's that like <laughs> it kind of mm, has a new meaning I want- yeah <laughs> um so moving moving on to the to the you know the final kind of run of the the episode what do you what is the the franchise the planet of the apes what does it contribute to cinema what's the legacy of this this series of films in your opinion holy cow um i would say that the two major contributions the Mm -hmm. first is that makeup artists and motion capture the technology continue to excel despite the industry's cold shouldering or maybe even like outright dismissal uh and the second is that you know the uh Taking intelligence for granted, that is why we fall. That argument from Pierre Bulls is, to me, is now it's certainly uh, gourmet food for thought. Mm-hmm. And it's just as interesting as an, is as interesting an existential argument as the life finds a way. And so you better be careful with it in Michael Christian's Jurassic Park novels. So it really it really makes us think about how maybe sometimes and I, I, I mentioned this point in an earlier point already in this episode, but it really it really makes you feel that sometimes uh, 
what you would say are cautionary tales in uh, science fiction or high fantasy films, they turn out to be just kind of like some sort of reassurance, you know? It's just that it's okay for certain things to end, you know, because even though there is brilliance in the fact that we do try to extend certain things and we sometimes we are able to, but that there's also beauty in the fact uh, that, you know, certain things have their endings. Certain things mm. are not permanent. And, uh, you know, we got, you know, sometimes we got to make space for, you know, different beings to sit under the tree that we grow, if that makes sense. No, that makes sense. <laughs> it's also, it's also, I think, a theme that this trilogy specifically continues on with that not only does the virus sort of result again from humanity themselves. And yeah, of course it's, it's dubbed the simian flu to the point where in Dawn, some of the characters are, are blaming the, the apes for making us sick, which uh, it was the drug y'all invented by the way. <laughs> um, but then that continues to build the virus mutates and in, in war spoilers for war. And uh, there's also at the very end, which people will hear me talk about when we get there, there's sort of an, an avalanche that takes out the, uh, the Alpha Omega, the military unit at the end of war. It's, it's all sort of leading towards, hey, you know, you've had your time. It's the apes time. Stop trying to hold it. It's like um, Kylo Ren. It's like, let the past die and kill it if you have to kind of thing. Like, ah. you're still holding on. It's like humanity, you're done. Let go. Right, right. It's a little bit of that uh, by the end where it's it's almost, you can almost read into it as divine intervention or some kind of spiritualism coming in where the earth is literally like, no, y'all, y'all are done. I'm, I'm solving this. I'm tired of watching you guys fight. <laughs> so I think that that's, it, it befits that film because that has more of a sort of a historical epic feel to it in general. But I think it's, again, it's, it's like you were saying, it's, it, it is, low key the subtext of this entire franchise and this seemingly outlandish premise that has uh, kind of deceptive layers of, of uh, depth to it. And I think that's, that's part of why I wanted to do this, this mega series and like this franchise has been around forever. And a lot of people like just like yourself, a lot of people haven't seen the old movies or if they have, they've seen the first one and that's it. And it's like, this is a really rich and interesting history, uh, a really rich and interesting collection of films, all of which have, well, let's say most of which have something interesting to say and contribute. Uh, and, and, you know, I think, uh, I think it's sort of undersung in that way. That, that being said, I know you, of the ones you've seen, what is your, what is your ranking of, uh, of this franchise? Uh, well, obviously, and again, I'd like to emphasize, I haven't watched all of them, but after all this discussion today, I really, I really am going to, you know, make this a priority because, you know, the, you know, the concept of it seems too good. And, you mm -hmm. know, uh, so regarding my ranking of it, uh, okay. This, this is gonna, I think this is gonna fire up your podcast. So if there's anything happens to this, I mean, you know where to find me, Robert, but, uh, so in first place, Dawn 
in second place, Rise, third place, War, and fourth place, Tim Burton's Planet. Let, let's emphasize for the listeners, because you haven't seen the previous five, otherwise, I don't know if, uh, I don't know if Burton's would be fourth. Yeah, again, yeah. And <laughs> yeah. we're talking we're talking about placing here. So yes, I I might just throw a a a poll up at the end of this mega series and be like, which of these, which is what's the best Planet of the Apes movie, and just put the original movie and then the most recent three because those are by far like the ones that everybody's saying. At least one of those. It's none of the other five films come close and then not to say that they're bad. I think especially escape and conquest are really strong. Uh, but, but yeah, those, those four just have, they crystallized the, the, you know, um, what this franchise can be. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I agree with you. I like uh, Dawn's my favorite as well as people will again, here we can talk about next episode. Uh, it's, it's everything this movie is. And then a lot more, it digs a lot deeper Absolutely. than this film, in my opinion. Um, yeah, so no solid ranking. Uh, that's all I have. Win Lee, thank you so much for coming back to the podcast for another franchise reboot again. If you're down for <laughs> Casino Royale, if we ever get to that, um, I'll mark you down for. Let me know if there's any other franchise reboots you want to do, and and we'll make that happen. If not, I'll I'll definitely keep fran- um, Final Destination in the mix. Yes, because, fi- uh, Final Destination, because you know I'm dying to talk about it you know pun very intended sort of <laughs> sort of okay is there, is it, wood, but is there a specific since i have you now and and this is the second time you brought up final destination on this podcast uh is there a specific entry that when i do that you would want to to claim now before anyone else has a, has a chance to oh yeah the first one <laughs> okay. okay because if i if i if and when i do it uh, it would it will be because you've you you've in, you've insisted upon it. It's because yes. because yes. when is like I need final destination, final destination, final destination. Yes, and so I, 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 I need am, to make sure you get the one you want. I am exactly the kid in the house who's gonna ask for ice cream and <laughs> and he's gonna have that ice cream before he stops whining. So <laughs> yes, I am going to be that kid, and I apologized uh, beforehand. So, you know, <laughs> good to know when Lee tell people where they can find you on social media. All right. So, uh, once again, on Twitter, on Instagram, we know that. Yes, I am recently made. <laughs> it's the, the V who it's a T H E V I E T W H O V I E T. Sorry. That's a bit long. Uh, on Twitter, I'm NOE318, and on Facebook, I'm win.le.334. I could always use some more uh, friends, you know, so, you know, just so instead of talking shop, we're going to talk about films, and uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Highly recommended guest. Get get him, book him, everyone. You, you just heard his social media stuff. Get get win on your show. If you have a, a podcast specifically about film, He's, as you heard here, lot, lots of uh, lots to contribute, lots to say. Very passionate uh, cinephile, so definitely, definitely reach out to him. And but yeah, this was a blast, my friend. I am always a pleasure to talk to you. We'll definitely get you back on as soon as possible. All right, thank you so much. And I would just like to say that you know, it's just, I mean, activities like this apparently don't happen in Texas that often, or you know, at you know the uh, the 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 area uh, where I live in. So I'm actually thankful 
and I'm the one who should be saying thank you to you, you know, uh, you know, for having me on and, you know, for finding me enjoyable. So I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm just happy. I'm, I'm over the moon. So anytime, anytime. Big thanks to film critic Gwen Lee for coming on to discuss 2011's Rise of the Planet of the Apes. This was a an interesting one because it, it's resurrecting a essentially dead brand at this point. Uh, at the time this movie was released, and like I, like I said during the thing, it's very Batman Begins, very Casino Royale. I think there's definitely some connective tissue between those three franchises, uh, decades old franchises, and the way they were revived for a modern audience. I think that's really interesting to sort of use those as counterpoints and we'll see that comparison continue i think as we go through the next two films of this franchise the final two films of this franchise uh, as of now but i want to know what were your thoughts going into rise of the planet of the apes the first time you saw it did you see it when it came out in theaters and were surprised like the rest of the world that wait a planet of the apes movie that's good like for the first time since uh, let's let's go back to at least conquest that's universally sort of deemed a decent film, a solid movie. In fact, I want to know what you thought of Rise of the Planet of the Apes. You can let me know on Twitter at Crooked Table. Same handle on Instagram via email at robert at crookedtable.com. For now, that's a wrap on another Crooked Table production. We'll be back next episode with Dawn of the Planet of the Apes from 2014. Until then, catch you at the next stop, everyone. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the little KED.